Tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on, you could say, a particular flavor that has um, kind of uh, come through this practice, this awareness practice that we've been teaching you on this retreat. That's, uh, it's a flavor that's been really quite significant for me. And that flavor is this, this taste of mystery I think is so palpable in this practice that I think many of us have referred to, at least in passing. And I'm sure you have a sense of this, that, that maybe while doing this practice during this retreat, there has been that, that taste of the, this mysterious quality to awareness itself. And before I begin sharing, I, I guess I just want to check in or clarify. You know, I, sometimes with a talk like this, I get concerned that you might feel like that I'm teaching you something. <laughs> what a crazy idea, huh? And what this reminds me of is in, in Zen, the, the term for Dharma talk is Taisho. And the Zen master I practiced with said that the that literally Taisho means um, to celebrate the Dharma. So I, I maybe tonight will be more of a celebration than a teaching. No. Sorry, there's not going to be too much music or dancing, but uh, <laughs> still a celebration. And also around Taisho, that, that kind of, it literally meaning that you never know in Zen. You know, a lot of times that might not be etymologically accurate. There is a kind of creativity in Zen, but there is something, I think, true about it. That there's a place to celebrate, especially through, through something like this. Yeah, so Celebration. I'd like to begin with a story. Um, A couple weeks ago, my wife and I went to the Petrified Forest National Park, which is in northern Arizona. And I'd never been there before. And it was so amazing and wondrous because it was a time, really, you know, at the beginning of spring in the desert where you have those beautiful small desert flowers, you know, blossoming, so delicate yet uh, so moving. And it was a day with uh, just the wind and the sun and just being in that environment, so vast, that environment. And we were also blessed just with a, a little bit of rain, which I think there's something so magical about that when you're in the desert in the spring. And of course, the petrified wood, which if you've never seen it, it's a trip. I mean, what's up with that? How does that work? And after spending most of the day uh, really taking that in, receiving such wonder, such, such an awe-inspiring environment. We went to the visitor center, and in the visitor center was also something really amazing. <laughs> it was this timeline, this visual timeline of the 4.5 billion year history of the earth. 
And for me, 4.5 billion years, I just can't even get my mind around that. It's incomprehensible. Like how to get a sense of that vastness. And one of the things that was so helpful was a timeline to crunch the 4.5 billion year history of this planet that we're on into one calendar year. And it gave me so much more of a sense of the unfolding of this, this mysterious planet that, that we're on. So if we were to scrunch the 4.5 billion year history into a calendar, life doesn't appear until February 25th. And then it's not until July 17th that multicellular life appears. And then we gotta wait a while. Early November, plants on land appear. November 18th, the first fish appear. And then on December 13th or 14th, it's hard to get really clear about these things. (laughs) The first mammals appear. This is really striking. It's not until December 28th that the first primates appear, our cousins. And then our species, good old homo homo sapiens, you know when they appear? December 31st (laughs) at 11.36 p.m. really gives a very different sense, doesn't it? (laughs) It's just a trip. I think both of us were just actually kind of honestly really moved and, and, and unsettled and kind of something broke open around this. Brian Sowen puts it well. He says, four and a half billion years ago, the earth was a flaming molten ball of rock and now it can sing opera. really is wondrous. I mean, th- this entire unfolding of being is so mysterious and so wondrous. And just being aware, I mean, hopefully that's maybe the one thing to go away with is just how mysterious it is through this practice to begin to, to touch that again and again. This activity of knowing Noticing the different facets of it. There's something so mysterious just to be aware in the midst of this vast universe on this tiny, tiny little planet with such a massive history that we've been here so briefly for. And really, especially in terms of this practice, you know, I'm not talking about the mystery of like a mystery novel. <laughs> and not the mystery of, of ignorance, but rather the mystery of, of openness, of in- intimacy. And to be clear, you know, the... I think one of the, the, the moving things for me about this practice is how the Buddha gave me a path that is not mysterious. It's very clear. 
which I so appreciate, you know, very simply, which many of you know, like the, the practices of sila and samadhi and panya, or in other words, the Eightfold Path, that we've been given this, a particular, you know, group of practices that lead us, you could say, to freedom or lead us to this mystery. Something clear about that. And, and I appreciate the, the Buddha's kind of practicality in that manner. And then even around full awakening, around awakening, there's so often there's a, a clear definition that we can find again and again, and it's, it's actually in your study guide too, through the voice of Sariputta when he's asked, what is Nibbana? And he says, the destruction of greed the destruction of aversion, the destruction of delusion, this, this is called Nibbana. So again, very clear, Nibbana, awakening, it's a, it's a heart free of greed, hatred, and delusion. But hopefully you notice something about this definition it's a definition in terms of negation. The Buddha is very clear about what's not there in the heart. The clarity of that. And, and there's, there's a number of, of passages that are really have, have this sense of negation, like another quote in the study guide. You know, there is, practitioners, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated these are the things that Nibbana is not. It's not fabricated. It's not made. It's not become. It's not born. It's the deathless. It is not death. And it's true. Sometimes there are some positive terms associated with Nibbana awakening. You know, peaceful, exquisite. But I think more often it's in this, this language of negation. So again, I think the, the Buddha is very clear, very clear about the path, very clear about the definition about awakening, where this is moving towards. But it doesn't give us a lot around it. Right? That's pretty sparse. And if anything, the more I, I read into some of these conversations that happen in the, the Pali discourses on around awakening, what begins to pop out is the mystery of it. So one story about this King Pasanadi, who was a, you know, a practitioner of, of the Buddha, was traveling through his kingdom, the kingdom of Kosala, and was, was with his entourage, and they were staying the night in the town of uh, Tornavatu. And the king in the evening, he's looking for something to do. So he asked his attendant if there were, you know, the, I guess the common thing in that time was there's any spiritual teachers around so we could go and listen to them. <laughs> and lo and behold in the town of Tornavatu, there was this bhikkhuni, this, this uh, bhikkhuni uh, uh, Kema, who was fully awakened, who was known for her, her wisdom, her insight. You know, as, as it said in the discourse, you know, word has it has spread that she is wise, competent, intelligent, learned, a splendid speaker, and genius. So of course, King Pasanadi and his entourage go and uh, go to pay respects and to visit 
um, the venerable Kemma. And uh, when he gets a chance, he asks her, please tell me, how is it? Can you tell me, does the Tathagata, does the Tathagata exist after death? Or we could say, does an awakened heart exist after death? And Kemma is very clear. She says, oh, the blessed one has not declared that. And then King Pasanadi continues with his question. Says, well, well, if he doesn't declare that, does that mean that, that the Tathagata does not exist after death? And then she says, well, he hasn't declared that either. Well, if he hasn't declared that, then the king asks another question. If he hasn't declared that, does the Tathagata both exist and not exist after death? You think that would cover it, right? And Kem is very clear. Yeah, no. It doesn't declare that. And then, of course, the, the last, this is a very common way of asking questions. So does that mean that Tathagata neither exists nor not exists after, that, after death? And the Kema, again, the Venerable Kema uh, says, uh, yeah, the, the Blessed One does not declare this. And then King Pasanadi basically says, what's up with this? You know, what's... <laughs> What's the cause and reason why, why the Blessed One isn't, isn't declaring anything around, around this? And then she's very clear. She says, because he is deep, immeasurable, hard to fathom, just like the great ocean. There's something unfathomable about awakening, immeasurable about it. So deep. And again, in a similar conversation that the, the Buddha is having with one of his uh, monastics, the, the monastic uh, Anuradha, basically at the end of a very similar conversation that just happened between King Pasanadi and, and the Bhikkhuni uh, Kemma. The Buddha basically says to Anuradha, he says, basically, you know, you can't pin down the awakened heart. You can't pin down the Tathagata as a truth or a reality even in the, present, in the present life. You can't pin down awakening. It's too mysterious. It just can't be done. I think Basho, the, the great 17th century Japanese poet, one of the, the great Japanese poets, puts it so well. So simply, it says, it's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. Not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. Something mo- so mysterious about awakening. And I feel like for me, in this practice of, of exploring the activity of knowing, exploring the knowing, exploring the fundamental nature of mind, I think it exposes us at least to this taste, this particular flavor of freedom, this flavor of the mystery, of it being mysterious. Have you tasted that on this retreat, the, the taste of mystery, 
when you rest back in the knowing. Sometimes, it, again, it can be so close, so deep, so simple, and so good. The mystery of it all. And this flavor has been really important for me because what I've noticed is it does move my heart. Move, moves my heart in, in many ways, but in particular in regard to this practice, it moves it in the direction of non-clinging. Moves it in an onward leading direction. Maybe just a couple simple examples of this, you know, for me and my, my own path. You know, I, th- I think I have, I've had a history in my life of trying to get through, especially the tough stuff, by trying to neurotically figure it out or solve it. And the feeling of when I get hooked into trying to figure out in that way or to solve it feels the opposite of what I've learned from this path of being with. Of being with experience in a way that really my intellectual understanding just can't reach. But there's a wisdom that arises from it. It feels so different from the figuring out and the solving. I think that's why maybe I spent so much time in in my college years studying philosophy. <laughs> there was the hope, there was the hope I could find the answer or I could learn how to think in a way that I could figure some of this out to bring me peace. It didn't work. I think I, actually, I worked on a farm after that. <laughs> that was a little more grounding. <laughs> and maybe you can relate to this. Maybe your your avenue wasn't getting lost neurotically in philosophy, but other ways that you, your mind wants to figure it all, all out or to know in a way that's filled with grasping. And, and yes, there's a place for wise reflection and care, careful thinking. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking when it's entangled with, with clinging. Remember I, when I did my... Uh, First Goenka retreat that was it was in India, Igatpuri, India. It was uh, actually Goenka was was staying there. Um, I don't know if anyone's done. Uh, has anyone done a, a Goenka retreat? A Goenka retreat? Yeah. It's actually interesting because he would come uh, in the morning. We'd do our early morning sit, and then he'd walk by with his this big booming voice chanting in Pali when he was walking. And there's something so moving about it. It was really quite striking. And before the retreat began, I, you know, this, I was really, at this point, still very new to practice. I didn't really understand it so well. And there were some practitioners there and, and that I'd met and was hanging out with who had you know, been practicing for quite a while. And so I asked them, a little sheepishly, of, of, you know, so has this practice solved a lot of your problems? <laughs> much, much to my disappointment, they said, No. <laughs> And this one, actually, there's this one person, he said, it hasn't, but a lot of them have dissolved as a result of it. I haven't solved them, but they've dissolved. Something so true about that. 
And when I touch the mystery, it allows me to rest back and to surrender to this process of dissolving that this practice gives us around our difficulties. It leads in this direction of non-clinging. It allows that to happen. It helps me loosen my grip around the figuring out, around the needing to know. Because that kind of knowing can be so shallow. As as Tokusan, the the great Zen master of the ninth century said, he said, however deep your knowledge of the scriptures, it is no more than a strand of hair in the vastness of space. However important appears your worldly experience, it is but a drop of water in a deep ravine. So small compared to touching the mystery of it all. So small to compared to touching the mystery of this knowing that we're exploring. Also, just one other example of how it leads my heart towards non-clinging. Is it does feel like when I really touch the mystery of it all, the mystery of especially being aware, it shakes me out of my normal ways of approaching, you could say, this activity of living and dying. I mean, just similarly, you know, I gave you that example, that story of, of the time scale of the history of this planet that can shake things up in a particular way too, right? Because it's so interwoven with, with our ephemerality, with our impermanence, that can shake and disrupt in a way that leads onward on this path. And so important to keep in contact with that quality of our species and our lives. Shezwal Miłosz, the great Polish poet, puts it so well around this, this ephemerality, this impermanence. He says, the partition separating life from, from death is so tenuous the unbelievable fragility of our organism suggests a vision on a screen. A kind of mist condenses itself into a human shape, lasts a moment, and then scatters. The mystery of our being the mystery of our being aware. So ephemeral. So delicate. And this touching the mystery itself, I think, does a similar thing. Really a way to disrupt my normal way of being in the world. And I think it's there in this nature of, the fundamental nature of knowing, this nature of awareness. It's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. I 
Now what I'd like to share with you is a, another facet of this mystery that actually just in the last few days, I think all of us teachers have been touching upon, but I'd like to revisit it with all of you. And I'd like to kind of introduce this facet with another story, probably another story uh, that probably all of you know, but it's a, it's a great story to, to celebrate. And it's the story of the beginning of the Zen tradition. And again, it's a story that's probably not historically accurate, but a true story. So often we demand that our true stories are historically accurate. It's really quite tragic. <laughs> so this happens the, where this takes place is at uh, Vulture Peak, a place you can still visit in India, in kind of current day India and Rajgir India. Back then it was uh, around Rajagaha. And so the Buddha was at Vulture Peak, um, said a, a place where he gave many talks and a place that he liked to, to retreat. And in this particular time, there's a whole assembly of the monastics and the Buddha is up in front of them, um, prepared to, to share the Dharma. And as he's sitting up there, he does one thing. He holds up a flower And when he holds up a flower, one of his monastics, the Venerable Mahakasapa, smiles. And when he sees Mahakasapa smile, he confirms that experience. And he says, he says to him, I have the treasury of the true Dharma I, the subtle mind of Nirvana, the true form of no form and the flawless gate of the teaching. It is not established on words and phrases. It is a special transmission outside the teaching. And now I entrust it to you, Mahakasapa. So really the Buddha wasn't transmitting anything to him. It was a confirmation of, of what Mahakasapa was seeing. You could say it was a confirmation of Mahakasabha fully inhabiting and fully expressing the mystery of it all, the mystery of awakening around the experience of just the holding up of a flower. Maybe some of you in the Zen tradition probably know, which I think is so striking. You know, the Zen master Dogen names his, his, his biggest work around this, Shobogenzo. You know, Shobogenzo means the treasury of the true Dharma I. It comes from this story. So what I want to point out is this is not the mystery of not understanding. Rather, it's, it's the mystery in terms of a kind of understanding that's beyond language. An understanding that's not established on words and phrases. And I want to point out that you've been entering into this realm of, that's beyond language again and again and again, even if it's short moments, many times, of resting back, resting into the knowing, resting into awareness, knowing that you know. That's what we're trying to taste, that quality that's beyond language beyond words and phrases. Because it's not 
like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. And that's the tricky thing, because words, they, they can be misleading. You know, as I shared the other morning, I paraphrased the Zen master Dio Kokushin. I want to give you the, now the exact wording, because it's so much better than what I said. <laughs> so the, the, the quote was, this is what Dio Kokushin says, wishing to entice the blind, the Buddha has playfully let words escape his golden mouth. And now heaven and earth are ever since filled with entangling briars. Right? Words can mislead us. I think this is why uh, Nagarjuna, who I kind of want to say this because we'll be getting to Nagarjuna, I hope, in, in emptiness. This is, many people feel that Nagarjuna is... Um, uh, the second most important figure, if you look at all of Buddhism behind the Buddha in terms of influence, really the uh, much of the thinking that comes out of, um, especially one of his works, the Mulamanyamaka Karika, has been such a big influence. And this is from one of his hymns that uh, has also been attributed to him, where he, he, he says, I think rather, rather poetically, that not a single syllable has been under, uttered by the Buddha. Why would he say this? Because it's this notion that sometimes you find, especially a little bit later on in Buddhism, that, that, that language can be so misleading. That the Dharma really is beyond words that can be uttered. It's something vaster. It's not established on words and phrases. Because language can be so confining, it can trick us. And the fundamental nature of awareness, hopefully you've tasted it, it's beyond language in some way. You could say that, that language reifies, it reifies fluid experience into right, the, 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 the solidity of nouns and things. You know, even this notion that, that we find so much in language of here I am sitting here, listening to the frogs. I feel like it, it misleads, it misleads me to the direct experience of that right now. Something so much vaster and deeper just around that simple experience. And I think that's the interesting thing about the nature of this, this, this nature of awareness practice is it can undermine sometimes these dualistic ways of, of getting a sense of the world, which so, so often language can reinforce. And I think this is the, the interesting thing when I was um, doing the, the Zen monk thing. A, a lot of the learning happened in a nonverbal way. I think uh, out of the six years that that I was um, living in a Zen monastery, there was maybe, I mean, it was probably extreme in the tradition I was, but there was maybe, during those six years, maybe 15 minutes to a half an hour of like practical meditation instruction. 
And so much of learning meditation was really through through the body and through modeling uh, one's older uh, older monks and things like that. It was it was through this nonverbal way of of learning it, and really through the form and through the rhythm of monastic life that it was learned, not through words, not through language as much. Yeah. It's not like anything they compare it to, the summer moon. And yet, you know, as Dayo Kokushi says, and yet the Buddha has playfully let words escape his golden mouth. It's true. And I love the practice of Zen, and there's a good reason why my heart is now with Theravada. I like meditation instructions. They're helpful. (laughs) I mean, my heart, as you can tell, is still very much connected with, with Zen practice. But honestly, there was something I needed, some clarity through language that really helped my practice. Because as we've been saying again and again, language, it points, it points to this freedom. It helps kind of pop out some of the things for us to discover. You know, example of this is like you go over to a friend's house and they serve you soup and there's, there's some spice in the soup and you don't know exactly what it is until your friend says, oh, I put a little rosemary in the soup. And then when you hear the word rosemary, it's like, oh, there it is. I can taste it. That's what it is. You know that experience I'm talking about? That clarification, that word helps bring out something in the soup. It helps you connect with it. At least it does for me. That words point in that way. And that's what we've been doing is, is pointing in that way of, of pointing out this flavor, this one flavor by inviting you to rest in the knowing. Oh yeah, there is, there is something mysterious about that. There is a flavor of release, of ease with that. Interesting. They point in such an important way. You know, another example of this, and just this example also is to honor uh, Many of you know uh, the poet W.S. Merwin, who I think died about a month ago. Again, one of the uh, the great poets in the English language. And I really appreciate this poem of his, Absence. It's just two lines. But I think it speaks to this quality that words point. He's, so the title of, of the poem is Absence, really about loss. He says, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Your absence, your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. It points to something 
about loss, doesn't it? And I could say to you, you know, this poem explains how painful and intense loss is and how it feels really pervasive in our life. But that doesn't really capture what those words do, do they? My explanation. My explanation kind of misses this pointing to something so much deeper about the experience of loss. Something so much more accurate about that. That your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. It points. And everything I do, it's stitched. It's stitched with its color. So when we skillfully use words, they, they, they can point to that which is so difficult to put into words. You know, just as Basho does. It's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon. And this is something also that you know, we've been coming back to again and again is, is asking you this question, or what are the words and phrases that help point you to the, the nature of awareness, that help point you to this mystery? Whether it be so close, so deep, so simple, so good. Or even to help us with, with a practical way in of to turn, you know, to turn toward awareness itself, to turn, and then to recognize and rest. I don't know if anybody has, has explored that, because it can be so helpful to just have three words to remember. Oh, turn. Oh, yeah, just, I just need to return. Oh, and, the, and, and then that recognition, and then just resting. And maybe when I say that, you can get a feeling of that, if you've had some kind of experience of that. Or for me, again, I'm going back to Zen, because it's been so influential. As the Zen Master Dogen says in the uh, Fukun Zazengi, there's instructions for meditation. He said, you should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding pursuing words and following after speech. And instead, learn the backward step. And that's been so helpful. Sometimes all I need to remember is, oh yeah, Brian, oh, just the backward step. The backward step into resting, into awareness. or Ajahn Amaro saying, rests in the natural peace and ease of the mind and body, which is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. Don't you love that? Some of you probably know that. It's so great, this, that, I, I love remembering that. Oh, okay, yeah, just, 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 just rest in the natural peace and ease of the body, of the mind and body, which is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. So I want to point out it is, it is important when we 
begin to touch the mystery to also find the words that point to the mystery. Maybe one last story that I want to read from you. I think this might come from Small Boat, Great Mountain. But again, I think it's a great example of, of words pointing to something that is so beyond language. This is Ajahn Amaro writing about this. He said, During the summer of 1981, Ajahn Chah gave a very significant teaching to Ajahn Sumedho on the liberating quality of non-abiding. You could say, say what we're doing here is a non-abiding. We're not abiding with any kind of thing. It's a non-abiding. It's a resting, but a different kind of non-abiding. Abiding. And Ajahn Sumedho had been been in England for a few years when a letter arrived from Thailand. Even though Ajahn Chah could read and write, he rarely did. In fact, he hardly wrote any anything, and he never wrote letters. And the me- message began with a note from a fellow Western monk. It said. Well, Ajahn Sumedho, you're not going to believe this, but Luang Por, which is honorific for Ajahn Chah, decided he wanted to write you a letter, so he asked me to, dic- to, to take this dictation. The message from Ajahn Chah was very brief, and this is what it said. Whenever you have feelings of love or hate, for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building parami. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Samedo is your place of non-abiding. A few weeks later, Ajahn Chah had a stroke and became unable to speak or walk or move. His verbal teaching career was over. And this letter contained his final instructions. The Buddha Dharma, you even say this fundamental nature of mind, is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This, this is your place of non-abiding. Right, it's, it's not like anything they compare it to the summer moon. Sit just for a few moments here.
And just a couple of announcements. Uh, again, tonight, uh, chanting at the 9 o'clock sit if you feel moved to come. And also tomorrow, uh, there'll probably, it's not going to be a lot of slots, but a few slots for for some sign-up individual practice discussions. And that sheet uh, will probably be going up either later on tonight or tomorrow morning, just so you're aware that those, there's a few options for that. Okay, thank you.